as it relates to social justice, right? Like one of the most powerful things about the team is that our schedules let us meet together as grade level teams and content teams, yes. right? And yes. so Keisha, as the special education, first she was the department lead and then she moved into the multi-classroom leader, right? Like she, I remember her saying one day, no, so-and-so is smart. And I remember saying, what are you talking about? And she would say, no, listen, you need to move this person into this particular group because this person has the intellectual ability to do it. Well, in my school right now, our SPED teachers have a different planning period than our gen ed teachers. And it is a huge, huge social justice issue because without Keisha's advocacy, right? I would have never known that that student or those students actually needed to be in the high performing group just with their accommodations met, right? So to Barb's point, teaching is a team sport. Everybody knows what a good school looks like. One great teacher in each classroom, dynamic principal, high test scores, order everywhere, schedule set, curriculum specified, teachers teaching, students learning. But what if this framing, though not quite wrong, misses the mark? Maybe a good school is a place where the boundaries separating classroom spaces are permeable and teachers share responsibility for all students' well-being and achievement where everything in the school is negotiable except the well-being and development of the teachers and students in it, where students know they are cared for and respond by learning to care in return. Maybe a good school is a space where all are growing and equity is a constant concern, where each one has a voice and everybody has responsibility, where teachers are leaders and leaders are always learning. I'm Barb Stengel, your host for this podcast. Join us for Chasing Bailey as we try to figure this out. In our first episode of Chasing Bailey, you heard the outlines of a bittersweet tale. Dedicated educators transform a troubled school into a vibrant learning environment, only to have the school closed and their impressive progress halted. Over the next few episodes, focusing on teaming, teacher leadership, school culture, and curriculum, we try to tease out the source of these educators' success. In this episode, the focus is on teaming. As you'll see, teaming at Bailey wasn't simple, and it wasn't achieved just by waving a wand or calling a bunch of teachers a team. It took effort over time and a vulnerability that's hard to find, let alone maintain. At Bailey, as Whitney Bradley Weathers reminded us, teaching, especially teaching with socially just means and ends in mind, is a team sport. episode, you heard Principal Christian Sawyer claim that the secret to Bailey's success was people, people, people. But in Bailey's case, it was people working together in a particular way. Here's how Sawyer captures it. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, when we think about how the efficacy changed of the educators in the building, I really, and to this day, I believe the one thing that I got right um, was the power of the teacher team. And so, you know, when I think about the work needed for quote, turnaround work, a lot of times we think of the power of the individual. And I think that's wrong. It's the power of the collective team. And when we started to see the Whitney Weathers of the world having coffee with her team every morning going over, okay, what's the, if you will, the game plan, how are you doing, you know, those relational bonds and that deep investment and ownership of the team. When we broke down the one teacher, one classroom model where teachers were actually sharing students and sharing the instruction across the standards, um, I mean, that's when we really felt that energy and momentum skyrocket. 
I wanted to see how Christian Sawyer's perception of the power of the team squared with the thoughts of the staff. So I talked with three folks on the 7th and 8th grade global literacy team, Kelly Latham, the team lead, April Roberts, the counselor, and Amanda West, a Vanderbilt resident, and also two leaders on the 5th and 6th grade team that first year, Jennifer Hurst, team lead, and Art Taylor, exceptional education teacher the first year, and 5th and 6th grade dean the year after. We join Latham, Roberts, and West in that order as they describe the ways they work together in what Mississippi native Kelly Latham described as big old meetings. I would have, uh, I, you're giving, you're giving us a lot of credit, uh, Barb, <laughs> I that it was really just um, a lot of, we met several times a week and generally it was just a conglomerate of, well, let's talk about, we know we need to talk about the data. Let's look at, you know, the facts where we are. Let's look at where we want to be. Let's look at the curriculum. Where is everybody? What do you want to teach? What do you want to teach? How do we fit that together? Scope and sequence. And then, you know, the SEL component kind of evolved through that. Um, but there were no, um, and I wish there were, um, but there were no set, like this meeting, we're going to talk just about data. This meeting, we're going to just talk about curriculum. This meeting, we're just going to talk about SEL. Um, we did not do that. Um, and I wish we had. Um, but that was, it was just a, we just had big old meetings. Because we were global literacy, I mean, we had people whose expertise was not in half of the content, right? I mean, we had social studies teachers who were being asked to teach like strategic reading intervention. And then you had English teachers who were being asked to teach social studies content. And so there was a lot of like teaching each other like the sh sharing of not only deciding what are we going to do, but like, how do you teach this particular literacy strategy or how do you teach this content in American or Tennessee state history? And then you add the layer of you've got multiple people who are not from Tennessee being asked to teach Tennessee state history to Tennessee state history standards. So, I mean, it was, yeah, I don't know that there was there was rarely, if we had an agenda, I don't know that we were ever able to stick to it for any length of time. Yeah. And then you also have to factor in the population of students that we were serving, uh, another layer that can be stressful for all parties. Of all the school settings that I've worked in, that was the, as far as emotional and trauma, traumatic things, it's the most cases of situations that I've had that I've come across. I asked the group how global literacy took shape in that first year, and team lead Latham responded. I think facilitation is, is definitely the key. Um, you know, I, I try to lead as much as possible, but I was in the weeds just as much as, as they were in trying to figure out the definition of global literacy. And then once we define what global literacy was, you know, we all had to come to a consensus and then we had to come to a consensus on how that looked in the classroom on, you know, what pieces of literature we were going to teach or primary sources or secondary sources and, and what have you. So there was a lot of, and you have a very eclectic group of people, which was awesome. But at the same time, we're all trying, there was no definitive answer. I really don't think at the end of that year that we could all define what global literacy was. Um, we could say what it meant to us or what we thought it was, but I don't think we had a, a clear consensus between all of us mm -hmm. as to what it was. And that's one of the things that, that I deeply um, regret is that we didn't come up with that prior to. Um, because I think we spent, although we made great gains and it was amazing mm -hmm. with what we did, I do think we could have done a lot more had we come in with that defined um, and a clear pathway to meeting those expectations. The seventh and eighth grade global literacy team learned to wrap skills and content and scholars' social and emotional needs together with a concern for questions of what is intellectually and socially just as Wes points out. I, first of all, I do at some point want to talk about race because there were eight teachers 
yeah. nine if you include Kelly on that team and only one of them was black. Yeah. Um, and you can't teach global literacy in a majority black school without like addressing concepts of race. So yeah. I think that's important. But also, I mean, as a social studies teacher now, and for the last three years, I have had one section of English literature. Um, but as a social studies teacher in my career after Bailey, I have, I mean, I don't know how to teach social studies without incorporating in incredibly large components of literacy. And I, I like to think that it's because I never really saw social studies without literacy because Bailey is where I did my student teaching. I mean, I, we do, whenever I read a primary source with my students, we use the same types of close reading strategies that we would use if I was teaching just like a, a standard text in an English class. We do, we write all the time. And so I think that the, I think that the like marrying of those two subjects, which I, I think are should be more closely linked in a lot of schools. And I think it's unfortunate that, that they're not, but I, it just, it feels so natural to me now that I can't imagine what it would look like to try and teach either of those subjects without the types of conversations and the types of, um, like considerations that we made at Bailey to make that work. We'll talk more about global literacy later when we think about curriculum and the teacher's active role in creating it at Bailey. But note the parallel as Jennifer Hurst, the fifth and sixth grade team lead in 2013, talks about the team role with respect to creating global literacy. It, the plan was for curriculum and, you know, like, uh, creating tests because we were creating the curriculum, you know, the global literacy, the idea of the global literacy curriculum was brand new. Yes. And so we were creating it as sort of as we went along. I mean, Dr. Sawyer had, uh, he had things in mind, but we were, we were creating it. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that was also one of the issues as is we were having difficulty finding the time to deal with the kids. There were a lot of behavior issues and we were doing fifth and sixth grade. And um, so it was just, it was a challenge behaviorally as well. So how did those decisions, decisions about curriculum and students' well-being, get made? Listen again to Latham. I think more than anything, it was just listening to what we wanted to try um, because I, I, more than anything, we were a group of people who wanted to try everything we could to assist these kids. Um, and I, I think giving the, the teachers and myself kind of room to try and fail and then try again um, was one of the, the great things about Bailey, um, that we did do that um, and we did try things. Um, but if, if a teacher brought something to the group um, the administrative team was very open to, well, let's, let's see how this will work. Let's, yeah, let's let them do that. Um, and then monitor them along the way um, and assist them along the way. But I don't recall us ever really saying no uh, to any innovation that a teacher wanted to try. The seventh and eighth grade teams seem to have an easier time getting up and running. Listen to Jennifer Hurst respond when I ask her about the early efforts to create a fifth and sixth grade team in the 2013-2014 school year. I'm not sure that we ever got it started, to be real honest. There was not a lot of camaraderie between the interns and the teachers. And I think part, part of the problem was the teachers were all very, very young. And I think there was a little bit of a they didn't have a lot of experience themselves. And so then they were trying to work with people who also didn't have a lot of experience and had a lot to learn. And it was just a really rough year. Um, I'm not, I think it was a mixture of, I wasn't sure what my role was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. um, and that was hard. And um, I don't think we ever did it right that year. I'm, I'm just gonna be honest. It was very hard. Um, and I, I just don't feel like we've ever, hit our stride and you know we tried we tried several different things um but it was it just wasn't well received ever and um 
I'll be honest, I tried to leave after that first year. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll stick around for another year. Cause that was like a, it was like night and day. I was responsible for, you know, like I went and got trained on, um, whatever the, whatever the observation, observation tool was at that time. And I was supposed to be doing observations on basically all eight of them. And I did do some small groups during what we would call PLT. Now I can't remember what it was called then, but you know, during individualized learning time Mm -hmm. and I would spend time in the classrooms, but because I never, I want to be kind about all of this. (laughs) It just, I was not welcomed into the classrooms very well. Um, So the teachers were not ready to be a team. Exactly. They wanted to be their own little clique, but like they, I wanted all of us to eat lunch together because I felt like that's a really important thing in the beginning anyway, to start to build um, a team. And I, I couldn't make that happen for anything. It was just, you know, there were lots of challenges that first year. Okay. And so do you think that was, that it, it wasn't, it wasn't clear enough what people expected or was it more that we were supposed to invent it as we were going? I think, I, I don't, I think there was a lot of inventing to go on. I, I think, I think honestly, in that kind of a setting, you needed people, the classroom teachers needed a little bit more experience or at least some of them did okay. needed okay. a little more experience. You needed, you needed someone who was in the classroom who could truly step up and lead um and that's what happened the next year we had several people that stepped up and led two members of the fifth grade team in 2014 math teacher Kristen Petroni and Vanderbilt resident Laura Lofman described their worth in the second year the year teaming clicked so much that Hearst described it as a dream team listen first to Petroni and then to Lofman Oh, goodness. There were so many good. The best thing. um, Yeah, I I think it's just it was having that um, the team in general, whether my grade level team was incredible. Uh, Jennifer worked really, really hard from the very first day of school to have us be a team. She had us all go to lunch together. She had us, you know, we we did everything together. We, we weren't allowed to let anybody go off on their own. You know, everybody was together. We're building this team. We're going to be a team. And, and she did a great job and, and it worked. I felt like I knew I was going to be okay, that I would have a group of people that had my back. Um, and I also knew that, yeah, it was going to be tough and it was, um, but just, you know, kind of like walking arm in arm with a group of people, that shared this incredibly important work made it made it doable, made it enjoyable. Honestly, like I look back and, um, you know, I know emotions are intensified right year after year as you look back and you you focus on the good stuff. But I can honestly say that it was probably the, the best year of my uh, time in education to date. Obviously, the fifth and sixth grade team needed and crafted more structure than the kind of big old meeting Kelly Latham described. That may be a function of the differences in culture and ethos between elementary educators and secondary educators, differences that are rooted in the somewhat different developmental nature of their work. And Jennifer Hurst has a good point. A lack of experience may have made teaming more difficult. But I also wonder if there might be something in how they each approached leading. In fifth and sixth grade, Hearst worried about creating the team before the work, while in seventh and eighth grade, Latham didn't try to build the team, but let the shared work build the team. important structural features marked teaming at Bailey from the beginning. First, there was less administration and more interaction. More adults deployed on teams to ensure that every child was seen, encouraged, and challenged. And second, there was a practice of institutional flexibility. When evidence, data about kids' learning, about teacher satisfaction, about parents' interest, warranted it, 
the Bailey folks were ready to reform and alter their plans and structures. In the first year of teaming, which was the second year of Sawyer's term at Bailey, there was a 7th and 8th grade global literacy team and a 5th and 6th grade global literacy team. Global literacy was a placeholder for culturally relevant literacy and social studies combined. There were also math teams for the combined grade levels and science teams for the combined grade levels. Each team was led by a teacher on an extended contract with responsibility for data analysis as well as team coordination. More on that in the next episode. In addition, there was a culture team led by Dr. Claire Jasper. You'll hear all about that in the fourth episode. The two-grade team arrangement lasted one year until teachers waged a bit of a political action to reconfigure the team structure into single grade level teams with a grade level leader, but retaining specialists in math and science. Dr. Sawyer had some doubts about the shift, but trusted the teacher's instincts. In the new arrangement, the grade level leaders were also classroom teachers with residents and extended contracts. The math and science coaches did not have assigned classes, but were always found in the classroom. No matter what the formal structure, teams always had plenty of relational capacity. A leader, subject teachers, a special educator, a paraprofessional, one or more residents, and were supported by a grade level dean of students. How could they afford that? Stay tuned for a later episode. Alex Caceres, an 8th grade math resident in 2014, described with appreciation how it looked to him from his current perspective of greater teaching experience. Well, so I've I've kind of been trying to reflect on this since you asked me and, and put together like the things that I noticed, especially now looking back on it with some years of experience. And I think a couple of things stood out to me, but especially I, I think I can see so much, so, so many teachers working together as a team. Um, many schools, I've worked in a couple of schools and lots of them talk about collaboration with, between teachers and making that a goal. Um, but in Bailey, it was like, so much a reality. I talked to different to all the other teachers on my hall multiple times a, a day. And that just doesn't really it doesn't happen very often. I've come to realize that maybe the structure of all this shouldn't necessarily be the focus if we're trying to figure out what was making a difference. It was the infrastructure, the norms, the feelings, the expectations, the habits of interaction and regard fostered by the organic structure that marked teaming at Bailey. Think with me about these four things. One, there was a shared and sharp focus on the scholars. Two, teachers could focus on scholars because the team structure took care of the teachers. Three, the teacher teams, rather than individual teachers, had extraordinary decision-making power and that led to fluid and just-in-time action in response to the actual needs of scholars. And four, there was an expansive sense of inclusion that extended to educators no matter what their role and to students no matter what their strengths and needs. Janita Sanders, an exceptional educator on the 7th and 8th grade math and science teams, was very clear about the obvious focus on students. Right. And I remember sitting around discussing high-risk kids and trying to figure out which adult was the best adult to go tend to whatever was going on, you know. Um, And those were some really special times because for me and prior to that, I had never been in a school system that took that extra time to really get child-specific, you know. And I've never been in another school, to be honest, that has done that that really has taken the time to get to know everybody, not, not just the frequent flyers, as they call them, but everyone. Then-resident Keenan Kerr describes what she found unique about Bailey going in. Well, 
I think what was very clear from the beginning and even in the interview process was that this was a community-centered school. Um, there was a very clear focus on, yes, we're here to teach children and we want to teach children well, but we also have to attend to other needs that are being unmet for whatever reason. And I thought that was really radical at the time, um, especially as compared to what was going on in other places in, in MNPS. So that was certainly an emphasis that I admired. The other aspect of Bailey that, again, was unique at the time, and I still feel is pretty unique, is this all hands on deck approach. And that there is no hierarchy here um, in the sense of, okay, I'm a teacher, you're a teacher resident, this individual is a paraprofessional and we all have roles that are explicit, spelled out, and they don't change. Um, you know, it was, what can we do for this child or this class in the moment that is meeting their needs? And it doesn't matter who does it as long as it gets done and we see a positive outcome. First year TFA teacher Susan Benier explains what this focus was like on a daily basis. I feel like we met every day at lunchtime or at least almost. And I mean, sometimes it was just covering small things, but um, we met very regularly, at least weekly to discuss kids and sort of like, you know, how is everything going in everyone's classrooms and what are the issues we're seeing and um, what's going well and what can be improved upon and, and sort of, and sometimes it honestly felt gossipy because you'd say like, oh, well, you know, this student and this student were dating and they broke up. And so now there's this whole conflict with this whole group of 10 kids. And it's necessary to kind of know that though, to, to anticipate conflicts and things like that. So sometimes it was just sharing, sharing details. Yeah. It's funny how much, it's funny how much we knew about what was going on, but um, so that, that sort of thing. But then, yeah, um, I would say we went over data maybe like once a quarter where we would like actually lay out like scores and, um, you know, improvements and seeing how different students were doing in, in each of the courses and what their grades were and um, also talked about behavior. Um, and so, yeah, I think we, we worked pretty well as a team to sort of realize which students were falling behind and which might be, be having behavioral problems. And a lot of times we would see patterns with certain kids and that would have us reach out to maybe like Dr. Jasper or someone who might have been in touch with the family. And then we find out that there's something going on you know, bigger in that kid's life that's causing them to, to have problems. And then we could, you know, direct them to one of the social workers who were incredible. Um, they provided us with a lot of help with so many of the kids um, throughout that whole school year. Um, so, yeah. Student Z Jennings, the president of the Bailey Student Council, knew Bailey was underfunded and didn't match the neighborhood where it was located. But she also knew that the attention and motivation the educators at Bailey offered her was amazing. It's in this area that has all of these surrounding places that's mm -hmm. like all of these big old houses, all of these nice neighborhoods and stuff like that. But it was so shitty. Mm -hmm. It was so, mm -hmm. Bailey was, even though we had amazing teachers, we had a I think the teachers and the staff made Bailey what it was because they it was about the experience. They made sure that even though we was, I guess, underprivileged, we was the we was the out we was less of what mm -hmm. everybody else was. They made us feel like we was top notch. Mm -hmm. Made us feel like that we was capable of reaching anything. We was capable of doing anything besides like besides what it was. But Bailey was like not. It wasn't as, I guess, uh, I think it was underfunded or something. It wasn't, mm -hmm. it didn't, it didn't match the community around it because it was so beat down. I mean, you said that Bailey made you the person that you are, mostly because people really took an interest in you and they, they saw your talent and said, Z. Can you see this too? Is that what it was special about it? 
Yes, ma'am. I would say yes, because if the people that came into my life, if they didn't have come, if they didn't come when they did, I probably wouldn't have. It's stuff that I know about myself that I didn't know at first, mm-hmm. and I was conditioned to. This is I was conditioned to this set. This is how it is. This is every like mm-hmm. in a in the in the environment of Bailey is like it is what it is that's how the attitude was that's how everything is presented this is exactly what it is and it's not going to be nothing more and nothing less it can't get no worse than this and Mm -hmm. if you think it can get better good luck Mm -hmm. like good luck that's how it was that's how it was always like presented so when I did have people come into my life and show me that like you can be something other than Loud depending and on the government right yes right, right. loud and obnoxious depending on the government mm-hmm. being stealing killing you can be something else you don't have to you don't have to re- i don't know when you when you fall victim to your circumstances mm-hmm. you don't have to be this person that that everybody conditioned you to be because in my life that's the way people around me like my family, a lot of people around me, my friends, they was conditioning me to be this person that I, that was obnoxious and uneducated and just broken just to be, they was preparing me for a life, for a lifelong struggle of this, this is, this the only life, this the only thing that they, that we have. This is the only thing that we can do. Whitney Bradley put the focus on scholars in perspective for me. I think there was, so there's, um, there's this quote that says, when you do something that is person driven, when the person leaves, the cause fails. But when you do something that is purpose driven, no matter who is there, the purpose still remains. And I think that we all believed for those children that they could do whatever it was they wanted to do. I truly believe that. I do not think we were outsiders looking in. We weren't trying to save them. We weren't trying to remove them from Casey Homes because we knew that's where they needed, you know, that's where they lived. I think we genuinely said, while you are in this building, we are honored to serve you. In the same interview, Bradley made a critical observation about what it takes to teach in challenging environments. One of the things that we normalized on our team very quickly was like being honest about when we needed a break. Um, and I think it took the strongest of us modeling that first, right? Because we had people who were always like, I need to take a break, I need to take a break. But there were times when Harding would say, I just need a break and say, okay. And I would say to my class, don't you breathe. I'll be right back. And they would say, okay. And they would keep working. And I would just leave both doors open. Or I would say to Harding, like, I need a break. And she would say, okay, no problem. And she, so, you know, I think it was like normalizing needing support. As Bradley reminds us, focusing on students and caring for teachers goes hand in hand. Teachers who aren't well cared for simply are not able to attend fully to student needs especially not in a community like Bailey, where so many kids are already experiencing the kind of learning loss we're worrying about post-pandemic. Turns out this support for teachers comes in many flavors. Amanda West, Charles E. Wigley, and Sharifa McDowell describe some of the ways the Bailey teams offered each other support, emotionally and professionally. Like, the emotional support that I got at Bailey was so incredibly important because there were days when I was just devastated with something that had happened or I was feeling really, you know, ineffective and having having people who were I don't like the term in the trenches because it makes me feel like teaching is like going to war and I mean the students are not my enemies but having somebody who was like there and experiencing the same thing who could either commiserate with me or 
re-motivate me or whatever. That's something that I think is very, is much more important than we give credit to. And if you don't have that kind of relationship in your first few years as a teacher, I think you can get, you can get pushed out of the field because it's so exhausting. And I think that Bailey was the first time I had ever heard the term or looked up the term like secondhand trauma, <laughs> like absorbing the day-to-day work and the day-to-day things that those that you care immensely about the trauma that they are experiencing and not being able, I'm the kind of person that's a fixer. I want to fix things. I want to help in some way or whatever way that I can. But ultimately, you know, the downside of being a helper is that you absorb all of that. um, And you don't, if you don't have strong, healthy boundaries or don't know how to set those up for yourself, then you suffer, (laughs) suffer personally and can suffer in the dark in terms of mental health kind of issues. And I think that I definitely experienced that um, in my time at Bailey. But I also think that um, the amazing thing was having such a strong support network within the school um, to really um, pick up on that about me and to, to, you know, reach out and get me um, services and support that I needed to, to be the, my best self for kids. I feel like the, the most important part to the support was that it was individualized. It, it met me where I was. And so it wasn't like, okay, here's 18 professional development opportunities you can go sit in and go do, it was like, hey, Sharifa, you know, this looks like um, something you might be interested in, or hey, Sharifa, let's meet and let's talk about your questioning today. And um, so when, you know, when it came time for evaluation, you know, there was very specific supports that I've had already, you know, that I could speak to in my, you know, pre, pre-observation, my post, you know, there was just, there had been everything was a little bit more fluid because there was just a level of support that was made specifically for Sharifa. It was, it was, it was support that, that they knew I needed because they were in my classroom. Collaboration was an assumption at Bailey. Having others around to help you figure things out was the ethos. But within collaboration, teachers perceive their own capacity to exercise autonomy, both as individuals because each person's role was respected, and as a team, because each team had control of curriculum schedule and student placement. Alex Caceres describes his experience of that autonomy. You know, you have your your coworkers, the person in the room next to you that you chat with, um, you say hi to, you ask questions to, but we were not only being friendly and you know professional but talking about how to best help the students and what what strategies we could use and so i think that was another thing that i noticed a lot was that um we as like i didn't notice it at the time actually which is (laughs) pretty funny but um we as teachers in the hall um bradley or kelly had so much autonomy to decide what we wanted to do that day that week um um, that lesson that unit like all of those i i never felt a strong admin presence pushing us in certain directions and that's definitely not true at many other schools and like i said i didn't notice it so much at the time because we were just making decisions we were solving problems um in our team meetings you know our eighth grade team meeting we'd sit down and and we would problem solve karen doris whom you met last time described her decision to conduct an action research project as part of the tlus master's degree noting that as long as she had a strong justification for doing it she knew she would be supported so I guess that was also the year that I did single gender, which was, which was just, well, that was my, you know, my action research project was the, 
And I think basically, I think it was like through my experience, I felt like this would be a good idea. You know, it's worth trying. And um, I know some people had doubts about it and it was like amazing the amount of growth that the, especially the girls were able to make and how much it affected, you know, that class just like operated like, just like a dream class, that girls class. Now the boys class was tougher, but I still think that it was better than my experience with my first year of having the mixed gender in sixth grade. So basically it only affected one other person and that was Cassie. Cause she, it was math and science were, I think was, that's how it worked was that it was, yeah, that she had the boys first thing in the morning and I had the girls and then we swapped. Yeah, and I think Sawyer trusted us to do it. And, and I think it was too, probably one of those things that he was like, if it's just going terribly, then we can always reevaluate. Yeah, and the parents had to, you know, approve of it. And the focus on students, the care for teachers, and the healthy blend of collaboration and autonomy made it easy to foster an expansive ethos of inclusion at Bailey. I asked Hurst and Taylor about inclusion, and this is how they responded. We worked really hard to, you know, on the inclusion model. Now, there were times when there were some kids who just could not ha handle it. Yeah. But for the most part, we, we really tried to in include the EE students. And I feel like we did a really good job with that. I agree. There was a lot of push in when you could. And like when we would go into small groups, um, we would pull kids, you know, sometimes you might have um, an EE kid in your small group because they needed to be working on that, whatever it was. I don't think those kids were isolated at all. And I think that was one of the, I think that was one of the, the strong, uh, one of our strong suits. Okay. You know, Jennifer, you mentioned, you called, you said we were the dream team. Yeah, and, and we got that fifth grade team. And I, and I think that's what made us the dream team was because, you know, we would, you know, I can remember, I could choose any one of the teachers and go to them and say, hey, this child really needs, this student really needs mm -hmm. to push in. Last episode, we heard Karen Doris talk about divide and differentiate as an instructional strategy made possible by careful planning and more relational capacity on the team. Kristen Petroni and Ben Pryor, along with exceptional education teacher Sarah Jeannie Wigert, formed one instructional unit with Doris in fifth grade math, a unit that generated near miraculous test score gains. As Petroni describes their work together, their efforts were seamless. Uh-huh, I think, I honestly think that was um, one of the biggest um, pieces of our success, to tell you the truth. Um, as a, you know, as her one of her math teachers, she, and then we also had, um, I had Ben in my room too, as teacher resident. And so having three of us to be able to split up the class and do small groups and, and, having her um, able to literally as students would finish tests we would send them over to her and she would grade and, and track the data and so we were immediately able to pull groups with no downtime whatsoever and so she would design groups right then and there split them into three um, and then she would get one i would have one and then ben would have a group and then from there we might split them even further depending on how large the groups were um, but I really think that being able to have the kids in such small groups and so much one-on-one -on -one with them because of her, um, like literally just her position of having her and her being so willing to work with the kids and, and handle all that data side of things while Ben and I were in the classroom with the student side of things um, was completely amazing. You know, I feel like there was so much growth in the kids mainly for that exact reason. You know, as as difficult um, of maybe a population, I guess, and a house to say it, but a population that we had at Bailey. Honestly, that year was probably one of my least stressful years um, because I was able to focus on what was important. You know, Karen was able to um, support me 
with a lot of the other things. You know, all, all teachers know we need to analyze data. We know we need to stay on top of our grades. We know we need to contact parents. We know we need to do small, we know we need to do all these things, but we're limited by time and just only being one human, you know? And so having her to be able to not only do the, the coaching part with us when we planned our lessons every week and bring all of her great ideas that she had for lessons and and resources and whatnot, but just having her as a partner teacher along with being a coach made all the difference in the world. I I can't say enough about how amazing that was. Keisha Harding, an exceptional educator in seventh and eighth grade, linked the work on inclusion to race, economic class, and social justice to explain her decision in the second year of teaming to become a team leader. There just wasn't a lot of people with, with the experience of special education that were comfortable having the types of students in their classrooms that I was comfortable having in order to make inclusion to work. Because the idea is always going to be they have a behavior problem or whatever, they need to be sent to another space. And again, we have to always connect both race and economic class here into the programs that have taught us to think that way and really understand, you know, why that is. So I was, it, it was my biggest space of learning, like it, it um, as, as both the instructional coach over EE, because I still was, was teaching, but you're also coaching teachers on, you know, vertical schedules or, you know, however we worked it out because we worked it out. Um, you're still coaching. I'm not able to at the time see classrooms, but we did structure things where I could give information about teachers and practices and we built it into our observe and learn models. The net effect of all this, and perhaps the most important infrastructure element of all, is that the teams included the scholars. The students at Bailey weren't the objects of instruction, but participants, subjects in their own learning. Teaming wasn't something the teachers did for the kids, but something that the school community constructed together, driven always by who the students were, what they cared about and were interested in, and what they needed to learn and grow. But teaming wasn't for everybody. Some staff, both teachers and administrators, realized that the teaming scheme wasn't for them and left voluntarily. Tammy Parsons, who was the chief organizational officer in the first two years of Christian Sawyer's term, had a significant impact on Bailey's success by recruiting a host of interesting and dedicated educators to join the team. Before realizing that the model didn't take full advantage of her talents, and departing, because as she put it in an email to me, when I can't grow, I need to move on. Kelly Latham, whom you met in this episode, had a principal disagreement with the decision to have global literacy team leaders in the classroom full-time and moved on to a very successful career as an assistant principal elsewhere. Well, in, in all honesty, I, I disagreed with the concept of uh, essentially a literacy coach being a teacher and a literacy coach at the same time. I felt like that was, uh, I don't know, kind of disrespectful to that role. That's a lot of work and that's a lot of extra work. And, and there was some extra pay involved, but I felt like the, the classroom teaching would suffer given all of the, the extra duties applied to that role. And I don't know how it worked out after I left. And, and I think just that first year, we were just all with the MCL. We were just all really trying to just find our way and figure it out and how it worked best for Bailey. And I, I hope that after I left that their decision was what was best for Bailey. Stellar sixth grade science teacher Cassie Beasley moved on after one year of teaming, not because she didn't love it, but because Bailey was a long commute from her new home, and also because she believed so fully in the mission that she couldn't trust herself to balance work life and home life. This is hard to, like, articulate. The way that my mind works, even, like, just as a person and as a teacher, whatever is expected of me, I want to be, like, doing, like, a little more <laughs> than that, and that's just my personality. But because the expectations of Dr. Sawyer were already so high, 
me trying to top that expectation was exhausting me. Like to the point where like my relationships were suffering. I all that's all I did was like I was almost like consumed by working there. The point is that some good educators did not find a goodness of fit in the Bailey scheme and departed. But those who stayed, who found the fit, found a professional home that fed them, enabled them to do remarkable educational work. At Bailey, the strategy was not simply to look for the best teachers and make it possible for them to interact with more students, but to assume that teachers and students could learn from one another in a supportive structure and grow together. As we'll hear over and over again, support and growth was in plentiful supply at Bailey, and teaming solved a raft of other sticky educational problems, as Principal Sawyer tells us. You know, what you're saying, Barb and Whitney, triggered one of the most interesting data changes for me. And that was related to teacher wellness. So as these teacher teams grew, we saw teachers were actually not having, you know, being worn down and so extremely exhausted, having to take as many sick days. Um, instead, there was an increase in teacher wellness. And if a teacher needed, definitely needed a, a day, you know, a sick day, et cetera, the learning advisor stepped in. We never needed substitutes again in the building. I'll give Charles E. Wigley one last word on all this, a last word that will lead us into the next episode. Teaching is a team sport, but leadership becomes something new in the process. Um, well, I would say that still to this day, I have yet to see... <laughs> Yet to see teaming work the way that it worked at Bailey. And I mean that in a good sense. Yeah. I think that that was definitely, definitely at the forefront of all of our, even if I, even if I don't think that that was necessarily articulated, <laughs> you know, by, by us or day to day, I think that's what essentially what we were doing. That was part of the mission um, to really build leaders for life. Like, I guess, whatever that was part of the mission. Um that's everybody. That's everybody all in on that. That's not someone in a positional uh, position that you might consider leadership. And that was something I learned a lot from Bailey, too, is just um, I will never see leadership as, as a positional thing. Um, and I, I already kind of believed that before I came to Bailey. But seeing it in action gave me that, like, yes, this is, this is how this should be. This should be... Um, building leadership capacity um, from everyone from the ground up and letting everybody see that they have um, not just, you know, insight and knowledge to add to the team, but that they have something, you know, worthwhile um, to give to everyone. Join us next time as we consider just what leadership meant at Bailey and what it can mean in the schools that you care about.